our new text in the book of 1 John, chapter 4 of the book of 1 John, if you'll open there with me, we'll read the whole chapter. We come now to the infamous passages of God is love, and the whole chapter is needed to set the right context. We've all, of course, heard that passage, but as we've read through the book of John, 1 John in order, we've seen him building the groundwork and the common interpretation of that. God is love, so he loves everything. He loves sinners. He loves sin. He loves wickedness. He loves all that we do, and we're free to be happy because he loves our wickedness. Uh, that interpretation, of course, they would, they would never say it quite in those words. I'm interpreting. But that interpretation is usually what's given when people quote that verse. But as we've read through First John, we know that's impossible to be John's meaning. Now, if we say we walk in the light with God and we have sin or darkness in our life, then we, <laughs> we don't know God. And if we say we don't sin, we don't know God. Uh, if we repent of our sins and confess our sins, then we can know God. And if we're children of God, then we walk in obedience to him. And this is all tying into that. So I wanted to read the whole chapter because he starts off this discussion before he gets into God is love with the commandment not to believe every spirit that we've already looked at. So let's start there. First John, John chapter 4, starting at the beginning of the verse, or begin, beginning of the chapter, the first verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you may know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son 
to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. Who we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is love perfected within us. By this, love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not, who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this exciting passage about the glory of your love, and of our love. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that we might not be deceived by those who are trying to deceive us, that we might not listen to the words of the world, but the words of your word. And Lord, we pray that we would enrich and enlarge our hearts and fill us with great joy as we consider this matter of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start off here, verse 7 mirroring God's love for us and our own love for the brothers is really a necessity for a Christian. It's a natural outworking of the spirit of grace in our life, in our hearts, that we will love our brothers as Christ, as God has loved us. Love one another is a commandment which John has spoken of repeatedly, and it really needs to be our reality in 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 7, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we know God and we have fellowship with God, we must walk with him in the light. John also told us in chapter 2, 9 through 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If we don't truly love our brother, then we're not walking in the light, and therefore we're not walking with God and we do not know God. That is what he reiterates in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. He's reteaching the same thing again. John also explained to us that our love has to be sincere. It has to be real. And 1 John 3, 16-18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Zachary, five minutes. It's not a sign of God's love 
abiding in us to talk about love, but to demonstrate our love in our deeds, just as God, in giving Christ for us, demonstrates his love through that work. Uh, To do it just in words is little more than hypocrisy. John makes love one of the central themes in this epistle because it is so important, and he's spending verses 7 through 21 of chapter 4 talking about love again and summarizing his teaching on it. And he says here that love is from God, verse 7, and that God is love in verse 8. Now, the two are very linked. Many believe Bible-believing Christians, when we hear God is love, we groan because of the horrible way in which the godless world twists that around. They want that to mean God loves their sin. God loves them the way they are without changing. And I think one reason why John has put it where he puts it in the book through, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit is that he wants us to understand what it really means. And he puts it specifically after the first six verses of this chapter that that might be the foundation on which the, the premise God is love is built. He speaks of the false prophets, the heretical teachers, the spirit of the Antichrist. And he says, they are from the world and they speak of the world and the world listens to them. And so the teaching of the world, the desire of the world, what they want God is love to mean is not what it means in the Bible, what it means in truth. And there is absolute truth because God is absolute perfect truth. We really need to reclaim the concept of love from the world, especially of God's love for us and our love for the brothers. The the godless world and all that it has to say about love is said from the spirit of the Antichrist. That's what we learn in this chapter. They speak from the world, the spirit of the Antichrist. And so we need to do just that. Now, the simplest definition of love the world has is a feeling, a kind of happiness. You know, you see that adorable kitten behaving cutely. Oh, I love that so much. That's love. What does that really mean? Well, love to them is the way something makes me feel. And that seeps into the church and corrupts the church's view of love because that is not love. That is a feeling. I feel happy. I feel joy. I feel good. It's a good thing. You know, I look at the kitten. I look at my children playing. I look at my children being cute. It still happens once in a great while. And I feel good. But that's not a feeling of love. What happens when we make that the definition of love? Well, we all have heard the term no-fault divorce. Why are you getting divorced? Well, I just don't love him anymore. I just don't love her anymore. Well, what do you mean you don't love them anymore? Well, they don't make me feel that way anymore. Well, of course, that feeling will come and go. Because it's just a feeling. If we make that feeling love, then it creates a lot of trouble. And if it's just feelings, you know, what about God? Oh, God loves me. Why does he love me? Well, 
because I make him feel good about me. Well, what happens when you make him feel bad about you because you sin? Well, then God doesn't love me anymore. Really. So God's fickle. He loves you, he loves you not. He loves you, he loves you not. The daisy. Where does it end? It's foolishness. Of course, an alternate definition of love that the world also uses is what I would call lust. A very strong desire for something or someone. Obsessive in the utmost, passionate, possessive. The person who says they love you and they can't have you, therefore, talking to somebody of the opposite sex. They can't have you having any other friends. They can't have you going out and being with your friends. You know, we've all met those kind of people. Some of us have known them personally in our life. Uh, the stalker. Sometimes they're not somebody you have a relationship with, but they've adopted that relationship with you. Other times it's the spouse. I've met people whose spouse is very possessive and obsessive about them, and they say, well, that's love. But it's not. Sometimes they become violent and abusive and controlling. Everything you say, everything you do, everything you think has to be controlled by the one who loves you, because that's what love is to them. Paul has a lot to say about that kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll just briefly remind ourselves, 4 through 7, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, boast. It is not arrogant, it is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable, it is not resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, how does it come and go? It's not the definition of that wishy-washy feeling. Oh, I looked at the kitten and it made me feel good. And then the kitten pooped on the carpet and it made me feel bad. And I don't love it anymore. That's not love. That's a feeling. That's an emotion of liking something and being pleased and not liking something and being not pleased. So we need to get that kind of thinking of love out of our mind. The other one is, of course, love is accepting me just as I am without judging me. After all, God loves me and wants me to be happy. That's the world's decision about what God wants. They don't care what the Bible says. And the first part is at least partially true. God loves me just as I am, or just as I was. At Ephesians chapter 1, we have God's love for us explained quite well. Starting at verse 3, I'll read a bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, now this is his love, he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in his beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So what is love of God? He loved us as we were, before we were even made. 
He knew what we were going to be, and he chose to love us. Keep in mind what we know about God's love, though. Romans 5.10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How did he choose to love us? He chose to love us while we were enemies. Do you look at your enemy and go, oh, that's so wonderful and adorable. I, 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 I love my enemy. No, that's not the emotion that you get. But he chose to love us while we were enemies. And we're called then to live in a particular way. First Peter 1, 14 through 17. We're called to live as obedient children. Told, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. For since it is written, you be, shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. They want God to love them just as they are and wants them to be happy and doesn't require them to change. And yes, God loved us just as we were as sinners, as enemies, but he called us to be holy, to change. Paul warns us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And even John has been telling us in 1 John 2:17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Yes, God chose to love his enemy, chose to love us while we were unlovable, But he doesn't choose to love our sin. He doesn't choose to love us as sinners. He doesn't choose to love us in continuing in our sin. He calls us to be holy as he is holy. God's love for you while you were a sinner and while you were an enemy and while you were alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18, is amazing, not because he ignored all of those things and accepted you as a sinner and an enemy, but... Because he sent his one and only beloved son to be the propitiation for our sins, verse 10. We'll get to propitiation in a minute. But that he sent his son to die in order to appease the wrath due for our sins and to bring us back into favor with him. That is his love. His love is sin cannot be forgiven unless it's paid for. And I will send my son to pay for it. And he will die in your place. That is how seriously he took our sin and how serious the call is to be transformed and to be holy and to live without that sin. But you say, no, 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 God hates sin but loves sinners. Where does the Bible say that? Scripture says, Psalm 5, 5 and 6, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates sinners. God does not love us as sinners. He loves us as children cleansed of our sin by the blood of Christ. We have an example of this hatred of God for sinners 
in the story of good King Jehoshaphat helping wicked King Ahab. You remember in Second Chronicles 19.2, Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, the prophet, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord has gone out against you. God was angry because he was loving a sinner, a wicked man who hated God. God does not love sinners, and he does not want us to love sinners that way. We will see how he wants us to love them in a minute. How do we love sinners? Because we, God is love, and we are called to love sinners. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How do we love a sinner? By sharing the gospel, turning them from their sin and rebellion against God to Christ, to life. That is true love. We've used the analogy before, the child who thinks he can fly. Is true love helping him to jump off the roof? Is true true love paddling his backside and forbidding him to go on the roof and telling him he's a fool to think he can fly? You know, if a child or a person is in sin, embracing them in sin and saying, enjoy your sin, God loves it, and God loves you, and you're going to heaven. Say this prayer and you'll go to heaven. That does not help them, and that does not save their soul. That just makes them more certainly damned to hell. Loving them is exposing them to the threat, sharing the gospel, and through it, turning them from their soul, from their sin and rebellion against God, encouraging them to remain steadfast in their rebellion against God, knowing that they're headed for eternal damnation, knowing that they're headed for eternal torment in hell, that is not love. That is hate. The world through the spirit of the Antichrist and the false prophets and the false teachers call the gospel hate. And the false church will condemn you for lovingly calling people to repentance and reconciliation with God. But that's because they don't know God and they don't receive the things of the Spirit, things we talked about in the first six verses of this chapter. They don't know the Spirit who is in us. We need to be careful not to let our love grow cold, Matthew twenty four twelve. But to love them in the true love, which is to call them to the repentance and to reconciliation with God. And that kind of true love Love that does not fail, love that does not end, love that is not just emotional, wishy-washy that comes and goes, is what God has shown us and what we are called to show our brothers. And that is the test of whether somebody knows God. That is what he says here quite clearly, and it harkens all the way back. We saw it earlier in chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 John. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God. In other words, if they're living in their sin, they're not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How do you love your brother? 
Well, if they're in sin, calling them to repentance. And if not, by caring for them, by loving them the way Christ loves us, by the way God loves us, by fellowshipping with them, by aiding them, by encouraging them, by lifting them up, by all the good things the Bible tells us to be doing. And John has been telling us to be doing. And by this, the world knows who we are. It's one of the defining characteristics of the Christian. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, John 13, 34, and 35, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. How did God, Jesus love them? By dying for them. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That kind of mutual love defined in 1 Corinthians 13 is a demonstration to the world that we belong to Christ. And that love is a pure love that we've been describing. The love that mirrors what God did with Christ in giving Christ to die for our sins because he takes sin seriously. And that love is a test for us. The believer, the child of God, has been renewed in the image of God. Remember, we talked about this before. And if we love God, we will love God's image that we see in God's people. And it is found in all of God's children, some more so and some less so. Some of us are less lovable than others at times. But we all are being reformed in the image of God, Colossians 3.10. And we will love that image in each other. And thus it becomes a true test from God. If we say we walk in the light, that we walk with God in the light, that we know God, that we love God, then we will love those who bear his image as his children. If we don't, then we don't know God. So we're without love, we are without God. Now our view of love must be defined not by the world in its wisdom, but by God in his word. Verses 9 and 10 now. He loved us in that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I've already talked about this demonstration of love quite a bit, but I want to remind ourselves, what is propitiation? It's one of those words that's only found here in the Bible pretty much. (laughs) It's not a common vocabulary word for people. Propitiation is the act of appeasing wrath and conciliating the favor of the offended person. In other words, when we sin, God's wrath and curse are upon us, both in this life and in eternity. And thus we will be under his wrath here, and we will be in hell, being tormented forever and ever because of our sin. And that wrath must be appeased. The price must be paid. Propitiation is a concept hated by the non-Christian. They don't want to have to pay because it's impossible for us to pay ourselves. We need Christ as God, as the God-man to pay that infinite price. We must appease his wrath, pay for that sin completely, and regain then the favor of God, to be re-put into a favorable relationship with God. Children, do not play. Because God has been offended. 
Now, in this case, and we see this in the Old Testament with the blood atonement, and Hebrews 9.22 tells us that indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without our blood being shed, our life being ended, both here and then the second death, the torment in hell, there can be no forgiveness. And it is Christ's blood that will take care of that sin for us. And that's what John opened his book with. First John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, the blood of Christ is what reconciles us with God. He has paid for our sin, and he has reconciled that relationship that was broken by man and by his sin. And that is the way in which God's love was made manifest among us. You know, God's love is shown, made visible, made clear, made concrete, not just in words, but in deed, by sending Christ to die for us. That's how he demonstrates his love. Of course, as we read the Bible, we see other instances of this throughout the Old Testament, of God demonstrating his love to his people. None as great as this. And it starts all the way back with Adam and Eve. They rebelled, they followed Satan, they hid from God because they knew they had no relationship with him anymore. And yet God reached out to them, he called them. And you know, in Genesis 3.21, he made clothes for them out of the skins of animals. And it's understood by many that God slew animals for them. In other words, there was a blood sacrifice, a blood atonement made for them, foreshadowing the work of Christ on the cross, even all the way back to the very beginning. But he sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, Galatians 4.4, 4, even though he shouldn't have had any obligations to the law, but in order to redeem us who were born under the law, he had to endure the law and fulfill its righteous requirements. He lived all the miseries of this life, hunger, thirst, poverty, injustice, persecution, rejection, etc. In every way he was tempted as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. But God was very well pleased with him, Matthew 3.17. He was the beloved son who always did the things pleasing to God, John 8.29. And yet, for our sake... God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be our propitiation. Right? Made him to die to appease the wrath of God, that we might be reconciled. Well, and he did that, we remember, while we were still enemies. Romans 5.10 we were reconciled by his death on the cross. We were dead in our trespasses and sin and our uncircumcised hearts, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, canceled the written record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it on the cross, Colossians 2.14. So we see his love demonstrated to us 
and is giving his only beloved son to pay the price for our sins. A price that included pouring his wrath out, his wrath for our sins, out on his own beloved son in our place. And for a time, abandoning his son to justice, the justice that we deserved. That is what caused Christ to cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27:45. That is God's demonstration of what love is, according to John here in this passage. And so we should think also about the son's love, not just the father's. The son's love was also made evidence, evident in the incarnation. We see in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, a very good explanation of this. He says, To have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, he's God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself. He set aside his place in heaven, his power, his glory, for the sake of his love for us. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. How did he love us? He set aside everything to die for us. Terrible humiliation and suffering. That is God's love. And that is what our love for each other should look like. Anna, hush. Some people seem to think that love is not that, but that you know, we loved God and God loved us back. Right? God responds to our feelings of affection. I chose to love God, and God was so pleased with my love. Since I made him happy, he responded to me by giving me his love and salvation. That's the false gospel of the age. Of course, as we've already hinted at, those people live in fear their entire lives, because at some point they have to acknowledge they've sinned against God, and God is going to be offended by their sin. And they think, well, now God will not love me anymore. And so they they don't really know the peace of knowing God's love because they think it's their love for God that has endured, that has caused it. John is explicitly, though, here teaching the opposite. And even more so down in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, when we come to that verse. God's love is seen not as an imagined reward or repayment for our love or our efforts, but it's something he initiated in spite of our worthiness, in spite of our being enemies and ungodly and dead. This is a huge point about love as a concept in Scripture versus what the world teaches and the world wants to hear and the world will believe. Both God's love for us and our love for our brothers are, are to be understood in this concept of we love not because it makes us feel good or because they made us feel good and we respond in love, but we choose to love one-sidedly, somebody who does not deserve it. 
and does not merit it. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith and faith in this, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Our salvation, which is ultimately tied to God's love for us that he saved us, is not of works that we can boast. We cannot boast that, oh, God found my love, my action so pleasing that he chose to save me. Or God looked down the future and saw that I would do things so good if he saved me that he decided to save me, because in neither of those we can boast. It's not possible. So God loved us by sending a son to make atonement for us and reconcile us to himself, because it is his choice according to his will. And as that is God's example recounted to us and explained to us in Scripture, that is what we must live out in our lives, verse 11 and 12. We must do as he did, especially concerning his love for his people. He taught this already, John, 1 John 3:16 and following. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for his, our brothers. Right? This is the demonstration of love that God has, that Christ has, and that we then should also have. Not lay down our lives for those who have pleased us, but lay down our lives for those who love us. Anna? God has indeed in the incarnation, the perfect life and atoning sacrifice of his son on the cross, concretely shown us what love should look like. And he has called us to imitate that. As Peter also called us to the same thing at some length back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and following. He says, What credit is it to us if when we sin we are beaten for and endure? But if you do good and suffer for and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. There shouldn't be any in us. That's part of the example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Part of the example. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Part of the example. But continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Part of that example. And he bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. That is also part of the example to us. This is the calling to us. We are God's children, and we are to love and care for all of his other children, just as Christ cared for us and God cared for us. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now he throws in some words here. No one has ever seen God. He doesn't explain it. It's connected down again in verse 20. And that finishes the thought in verse 20. And I'll put this off till we get there. But if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Uh, the thought is completed with those two verses together. And the sense is, essentially absence makes the heart grow fonder. 
It's easier to love some, say you love somebody you don't know or you don't see. It's easier to love the jerk who's far away in word than to love indeed the person who's next to you, even though they're a decent person. Uh, So we can say, oh, I love God, even though we don't deal with him directly. But I don't love the brother who's next to me because he's not as perfect as I need him to be. He's not as feeding me of what I want, meeting my desires the way I want. So I can't love him. And what John is saying, nope, you haven't seen God. You've seen your brother. If you're not loving your brother, you're not loving God. We see those around us. We see the children of God. That new commandment God has given us, just as I loved you, you're to love one another. Jesus' own words in John 13, 34. Our brotherly love shows God abides in us and his love is completed or perfected in us. John has spoken of this and I've already mentioned it. The one who says, I know him, but doesn't com- keep his commandments is a liar. First John 4, or First John 2, 4 through 6. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Uh, God's love centers around our obedience to him. And this is one of God's commands to love our brother. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. And God, the Holy Spirit, through John, through this epistle, has repeatedly stressed the command to love our brothers as ourselves, to love our brothers right as God has loved us. If we don't do that, then God's love is not perfected in us. We're not being obedient either. And he's saying we don't have God in ourselves. Based on God's example, love is really how we view and how we treat others, particularly the children of God, regardless regardless of their desirability, of their lovability, of what they do for us. Uh, I remember a discussion about racism once, and the white man was saying all the things he had done for colored people in his life. Well, what have you done for us lately? (laughs) You know, the hatred was there regardless of what he had done. Uh, Regardless of what people have done for us lately, do we love them? And that love is a sacrificial love not a sacrificial love of accepting their sin or helping them in their sin. Not as we talked about before, you don't give the drug addict money so they can buy more drugs or the alcoholic money so they can buy more alcohol. Or you don't encourage the the person living in sin to live in their sin more happily. Calling them to repentance is an act of love that God has done for us in calling us for repentance. Convicting of sin is what God has done for us and that is love. And saving us from damnation is an act of love, which Christ has done for us. And that is really the most important thing that the church and the Christian needs to work on, especially in this day and age in America, is calling each other and the church and the world to repentance and reconciliation with God, because that is true love. God chose us 
to love us as his children, sacrificed his son on the cross for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies. And so we must love the rest of God's children in that way. And love the world also to a limited extent in that way in calling them also to repentance. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, for turning us from our sins, for grace to us and strength to live our lives. And we pray that you would enable us, Lord, more and more to lead holy lives, to be obedient in our life to you, because that is the first part of loving you. But also, Lord, that our love would not grow cold, that we would be able to truly love one another in spite of the great price that that often brings. As when you call people to repentance, when you call people to embrace the truth, when you speak of the truths of your word to others, they will hate us. They hate you and they hate us, therefore, and they will not receive your word And we know that there is a great price for that kind of love. Help us, Lord, not to grow cold in that, to care for your people's souls. And also, Lord, that as the need arises and the ability exists to care for each other and your children in the material sense as well. As you have called us in this book for that also. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.